0: Please, congregation, turn your Bibles with me once again to Second Kings chapter 2. Second Kings chapter 2, page 391 in the Pew Bibles. are going to pick up where we left off this morning, picking up our reading at verse 15 and reading on to the end of the chapter. First Kings chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek for your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and has cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent, therefore, fifty men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees." But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up you bald head, go up you bald head. And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel and from there he returned to Samaria Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we already heard at the end of our sermon this morning, the prophetic mantle has finally been passed down from Elijah to Elisha. Elisha, remember, was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. And in that glorious translation, God placed his stamp of approval upon Elijah's earthly ministry. Elijah's glorious ascension we heard was the enduring testimony to what had been the Eli- what Elijah's ministry had centered on all along name it the God of Israel was the one true God. In that Baal and all their gods like him were no gods at all. But now Elijah is gone. And Elisha has finally taken his place as Elijah's successor. Elisha's one request, you recall, was that he might receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And God has been gracious to grant that request. For when Elijah took up the cloak that had fallen from his master and stood at the bank of the river and struck the water saying, Where is the Lord, the the God of Elijah? What happened? The waters parted. And that, you'll remember, was God's way of saying to Elisha that although Elijah may be gone, I am not gone. I am still with you in your your prophetic ministry. For although God's instruments may change, God does not change. And He is faithful to build His kingdom from one generation to the next. And so, the transition has finally taken place. Verse 15, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah has now rested on Elisha. Of this they could be sure. And yet rather than resting in God's wisdom, rather than resting in God's wisdom and his having taken Elijah up into heaven, what do these young prophets do? Rather than fully accepting what is just taking place. They insist on forming a search party just to make sure that God hasn't perhaps dropped Elijah somewhere on a mountain or somewhere in a valley. They restlessly resist God's wisdom. How can it be that God is really done using the prophet Elijah? How can it be that we can really go on without him? But one of the high watermarks in the life Of faith, says one pastor, is humbly accepting God's ways, even when God's ways run counter to our ways. God's wisdom settles us. But when we fail to honor God's wisdom, when we resist God's wisdom, that's when we become unsettled like these young prophets here who are so adamant on on saying they must go and, and search for Elijah. Well, Elisha, of course, knows that this is utter foolishness. He knows this is a foolish endeavor. He knows that Elijah has indeed been taken up into heavenly glory. But after they urged him to the point of being ashamed, he finally says in verse 17, "Fine, Go and see for yourself. Go and send send out your men. And so they did for three days, 50 men scour the land, they search the the mountains, they search the valleys to, to see if they can find Elijah, but they did not find him. And so when they came back while Elisha was staying in Jericho, Elisha said to them, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you not to go? Elisha, you see, is not only the bearer of God's power and that separating of the waters, but Elisha is also the bearer of God's wisdom. The transition from Elijah to Elisha has certainly taken place. Elijah has received the double portion, and we see that further still in verses 19 and following. And so the two remaining points I'd like for us to consider together this afternoon are, first of all, the the transformation in Jericho, and then secondly, the terror of the Lord in Bethel. But first of all, we see the transformation in Jericho. Now, as we come to verses 19 to 22, we do so recognizing that the narrator very well could have ended the story at verse 18. In fact, if he wanted to, the narrator almost could have skipped this entire chapter altogether. If you read from the end of verse 1 to the start of verse 3, the story flows just fine, going from the death of Ahaziah to the reign of Jehoram. But this chapter, 2 Kings 2, we could say, is a divinely inspired interruption to show us once again that as one wicked king replaces the next, God is the one who is still in control. God is the one who is still behind the steering wheel. And God is the one who is still working in the midst of these things, often behind the scenes, bringing everything to pass according to his word. You see, the point in this two-volume account, as we've heard before, is not so much to Show us what one king did after the next. Rather, the whole point of this two-volume account has been to show us what what God has been doing and how God has been working. And that's what the Spirit is doing here. The Spirit is bringing us back to the age-old question, how will you respond to the word of the Lord? How will you respond to that word when it comes? And so the narrator highlights the transition that's taken place by describing how Elisha now retraces Elijah's steps. You'll recall from this morning that they began in Gilgal. From Gilgal they went uh, went to Bethel, from Bethel they went to Jericho and then to the Jordan. And now Elisha goes back. He goes from the Jordan to Jericho and from Jericho back to Bethel. And so Elisha, you could say, essentially begins his prophetic ministry by retracing Elijah's stamps, and that brings him to the city of Jericho. Now you recall that the city of Jericho is where our study of Elijah really began. For Elijah was, was introduced to us, you'll remember, in the context of what Ahab was doing in Jericho. For it was during the reign of King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16 that that Hile of Bethel began to do what? He began to rebuild and to refortify the city of Jericho. And in so doing, you'll recall what Ahab was actually trying to do as those walls went up again. Ahab was trying to erase the inscription of God's grace that had been written over that city for centuries. You'll recall that when Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. It wasn't so much Joshua that fought it, but it was the Lord who fought it, so that the walls came tumbling down. And, and you'll recall, it, those ruins, those toppled walls, were to be a, an enduring testimony to the reality that the way into God's kingdom is, is not by the strength of men, but by grace through faith. And so Joshua warned the people of Israel on Joshua chapter 6, that whoever would be so daring as to refortify the city would do so at the cost of his two sons. And so when Joshua pronounced that curse on whoever would rebuild Jericho, it was to show that Canaan, the promised land, was a safe place for Israel, not because of the walls that fortify the city, but rather because of the protection of God's grace and favor. But Ahab and Hiel, you'll remember, rejected that grace. They wanted nothing to do with that grace. They rejected that grace at the cost of Hyl's two sons, according to the word of the Lord. They tried to silence that word. They tried to erase God's word, to suppress God's word. But as we know, God's word cannot be silenced. And now we're told that Jericho has been having a problem with its water supply. Verse 19, now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation the city is pleasant, as my Lord can see, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. Another translation perhaps captures the problem a little better when it translates the verse this way, saying, the city is pleasant to live in, as you can see, but the water is foul, and the country suffers from miscarriages. If we gather from Elisha, and what Elisha says in verse 21, that the problem is far more serious than Jericho's land being unfruitful. But rather, people are dying. Mothers are losing their babies. For this historically wicked city of Jericho, proud Jericho, remains under the curse of the just judge of the universe. So much for Baal being the god of fertility. So much for Baal being the god of life and vitality. So much for Baal being able to bring life and renewal. People are dying on account of the fact that the wages of sin is death. But what does Elisha do for this historically wicked city? He performs a miracle of transforming grace in their midst. He transforms Jericho's foul, death-bringing waters, into healed Life-giving waters. Verse 20, he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt on it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Congregation, what are we to Make of this? What are we to make of this miracle in Jericho? Well, the first thing we have to do is remind ourselves of what miracles essentially are. Miracles, says one pastor, are essentially redemptive punctuations in history. Miracles, in their own little place, restore to newness, they rectify what was wronged. Whether that be the, the healing of these waters in Jericho, or the healing of the sick, or the recovery of sight to the blind. What miracles do in general is that they reveal something of God's power to restore and make new that which is broken, that which is ruined by the fall. Miracles, writes he and H- Ian Hamilton, remind God's people that the last word does not lie with sin and the curse. But the last word lies with God and His grace. Miracles anticipate the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what this miracle is really doing here. This miracle is as an anticipation of the day is coming when, when the curse that afflicts the entire creation will one day be lifted once and for all. And so Darrell Davis comments, God is here using a visible sign and a spoken word to show that His word, through His prophet, brings grace to His people. God is using a visible sign and a spoken word to show that His word, through His prophet, brings grace to His people. In congregation, when that grace comes, what does that grace do? That grace transforms Whether that grace comes to foul waters or to foul souls, that grace transforms, it heals and purifies that which is sick and filthy on account of sin. And so just as Elijah's ascension pointed forward to the glory of Christ, so too Elisha's miracle points forward to the grace of Christ, to the grace of Christ, which does, and In our own lives, exactly what Elisha's miracle did to Jericho's foul waters. God's word through God's prophet brings grace to God's people. The city of Jericho, the city that resided under the curse of God, now receives the blessing and grace of God. That place where centuries before God had inflicted them with a destructive word as the walls came tumbling now, the same city now enjoys a healing word. And so one pastor captures the essence of this quite well. And he says here in Second Kings 2, you could say that Curseville has become Graceburg. This incident is a, is a cameo of the Lord's own character. It shows us how our God is a God who delights to turn the most curse-ridden, sin-laden, judgment-bearing situations into episodes Of his grace. It often seems too good to be true. It seems too much for sane sinners to hope for. But this is the testimony of our text this afternoon. God's word through God's prophet brings God's grace even even to Jericho, even to the historically wicked, historically proud city of Jericho. And so if you're here this afternoon feeling as though you're beyond the reach or the scope of God's grace, I tell you that it is not so. God's grace comes to the most helpless of people and places to heal and to bring the gospel transformation that we long for. Isn't this what God had promised in places like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 when he said that that he was the God who is powerful to replace those hard hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. He's the God who's able to come to hard-hearted sinners and to write his law upon the tablets of their hearts that they might know him and love him and live for him. God is able to bring about that gospel transformation that we long for. This is what Peter also is getting at in his second epistle when he says that Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says in Titus chapter 2, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to do what? To to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The Bible proclaims to us a Savior who... Gave himself up for us, says Paul, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. When God's grace comes, it transforms. That's our confidence this afternoon. Are you struggling with some secret sin that's plagued you for far too long? God says my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in your weakness. Perhaps your marriage is on the rocks and you've begun to feel as though healing and restoration are impossible. But the spirit says behold you're a God this afternoon look at the waters in Jericho how they were filthy and now they are healed. If God was mercy to ex- was gracious to extend grace even to the city of Jericho do you think he will Withhold his grace from you. As we sang at the start of our worship service ours Is the God who builds up Jerusalem. Who seeks her exiled. Her wandering sons. Is the God who binds their wounds. And gently heals the broken hearted ones. As we sang in the song of preparation. God himself is that fount of every blessing. That tunes our hard hearts to sing. They are His streams of mercy that are never ceasing. That call for songs of loudest praise. This is what God's grace does. This is what God's transforming grace is powerful to do. And the Spirit is saying to us in the waters of Jericho that we need to believe that. We need to believe in the power of God's grace. The message that Jericho's healed waters Proclaim is the message that our world so desperately needs to hear. Understand that perhaps some of us participate in the life chain this afternoon, a a good endeavor. And certainly this country desperately needs a law. But more than needing a law, this country needs the message. And those women who have perhaps gotten abortions need the message, the message of God's transforming grace. Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from and out of the curse. God brings life. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elijah spoke. God's word through God's prophet brings God's grace even to Jericho. But what if that grace is rejected? What if that word of grace is is rejected? What if it is mocked and ridiculed? We find the answer to those questions in verses 23 to 25. Now Elisha went up from Jericho to Bethel. And while he was going on the way, some small boys, some young lads, came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you baldhead! Go up, you baldhead! And Elisha turned around. And when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and, and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel and from there he returned to Samaria. This passage has no doubt left many readers aghast at how a prophet of the Lord could respond to the foolish jeering of young boys in the way that Elisha has done here. After all, These were just young boys, were they not? Surely they must not deserve something so drastic as this. Don't they deserve a a little slack, many will say? Many unbelievers will mock the entire Bible and the Christian faith on passages like this. You believe in a God who, who smites young boys. What do we say to that? Well, suffice to say what these young lads have done in mocking the prophet of the Lord is indeed a serious offense. The nature of their offense is of the same essence of the offense, of the, of the foolish criminal who, who hung at Jesus' other side. Because as Elisha takes up Elijah's mantle, he does so as, as a picture, as a forebear of Christ himself, the greater prophet Elisha, whose name literally means, God is my salvation. Elisha the Spirit says now returns to Bethel, a city whose name literally means house of God. But here we are introduced to the problem. Here in this city called house of God, the inhabitants make no room for God. Here in this city, Bethel, house of God, the inhabitants reject the word of God. Here in this city called house of God, they reject the grace of God and they reject the true worship of God. Bethel, we know from Genesis, was a historical place for worship. House of God, Jacob called it. But not anymore. This is a problem that's passed down from one generation to the next ever since the days of King Jeroboam. For it was here in Bethel, you'll recall, that Jeroboam had first set up his wicked golden calves. And so Bethel, you could say, had become the the epicenter in the northern kingdom of of Jeroboam's self-made, false-willed religion. So as these young boys come out to jeer at the man of God, they are representing what has become the, the common attitude toward the Lord and to His Word throughout the city in the course of these last 80 years. Their mockery, you could say, is a reflection of their parents' hostility. We, of course, aren't sure just how young these boys are, but we know they're old enough to act with deliberate intent because their mockery is premeditated. Their actions are are calculated. They lie in wait for the prophet. They know he's coming. They know where to go to to find him, to ridicule him. Perhaps a better way of translating the text would be to say, rather than they came out, they they went forth. They went forth to jeer at him. When they saw him, that's exactly what they did. They sang Go up, you baldhead. Go up, you baldhead. Keep on going through Bethel and, and out of the city. You are not wanted here. What these boys are doing is not just careless joking. But by calling the man of God baldhead, they are using this as a term of contempt. We aren't sure why Elisha was bald here. It may be because he was Mourning the loss of Elijah, it may be because this was some, uh, a part of his being part of the prophetic guild, but the point of the fact is that the, his baldness here is an indication of who he is. He is the man of God, and, and that's what these young boys are rejecting. That's what they're ridiculing, the, the word of God and the grace of God that is proclaimed through this word bearer. And so Elisha turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 52 of the boys to pieces. And this, the Spirit tells us, is where hostility towards God's word will get you. It'll get you destroyed. That's what the Spirit is saying here. This is where hostility towards God's word will get you. It'll get you destroyed. It will bring you under The curse of the Lord. And that's what has happened here. In response to their rejection of the word of grace, Elisha calls down a curse upon them in the name of the Lord, particularly the covenant curse of Leviticus 26 verse 22. Leviticus 26 verse 22, God warned the people of Israel that if they Forsook him. If they walked contrary to his ways and would not listen to his voice, God would unleash wild beasts upon their children. They would bereave the loss of their children. And this is Bethel's problem. They have rejected the voice of the Lord. The city called House of God has rejected the word of God. And now after having having been given more than enough time to see the folly of idolatry throughout the ministry of Elijah, Bethel now learns the lesson the hard way as the curse, the covenant curse, is unleashed. What we find here in these short verses then is not an irrational prophet, but a judging God. Here we don't find an irrational prophet who flies off the handle, but we find a judging God who will not be mocked. These she-bears were not just out on a stroll, but these she-bears were covenant-bearers. They were covenant-bearers sent by God to execute His just judgment. Had Elisha been wrong to curse them for their mockery of God, surely God would not have fulfilled the curse. But God did fulfill Elisha's curse, which reveals that what Elisha pronounced was in accordance with God's Word. And so Elisha is vindicated. For to reject God's Word-bearer is to reject God Himself, something that our Lord Jesus reiterates time and time again throughout His Gospels. The Pharisees want to have God, but they don't want to have Jesus, God's Word-bearer. Jesus, we know, is God's word bearer par excellence. He is the word made flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And what did he say? No one can come to the Father except by me. And so, in Elisha's first two prophetic actions after the parting of the Jordan, the Spirit, you could say, is summing up what had essentially been the primary message of Elijah's ministry. Some would have been the message of a lie namely that the Word of God can result in either two things, either transformation or terror. The word of grace comes through God's prophet, but also the word of warning. Transformation or terror. These are the two options that the Lord places before us as well as we sit under the preaching of the Word: transformation or terror. There is no. Middle ground. There is no halfway point. You can either be transformed by the word, embracing that word, in repentance and faith, or you can face the terror of the word and the terror of the Lord whose word it is by rejecting that word and unbelief and unrepentance. The word of God can bring great healing and great deliverance, but it can also deal great harm and great disaster. And so at the end of these two accounts the Spirit may have just as well inserted those words of the apostle Paul from Romans 11:22. Where after Paul had described the grace of God towards the believing Gentiles and the wrath of God towards those unbelieving Jews, what did Paul say? He said, "Note then, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, But God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Congregation, do not harden your hearts to this God who deals swiftly and justly with sin. For His kindness has been made manifest in His Son, the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ. And God has said that whoever would believe on Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Ezekiel tells that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He would rather that they would turn to him in repentance and faith. Isaiah 30 says he waits to be gracious. He's exalted to show mercy. And we sing of that mercy, don't we? Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice crying out among the scoffers was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, but his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Ashamed, we hear our own mocking voices crying out, crucify him, crucify him. But Christ, you could say, was mauled by the covenant bears on our behalf. For God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before You again and we humble ourselves before You. And for the revelation of Your Word, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the great prophet, priest, and king. Father, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us as the God of our salvation. We thank you, God, that your grace is powerful, that it is powerful to heal, to transform, to mend what is broken, to bind up what is bruised. Father, we pray that we would not believe that this grace is not for us, but may we see clear that it is. Your grace is sufficient for us. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. We pray, Lord, for the transforming grace that alone can bring hope into our hopelessness. We pray, Lord, for that transforming grace in our battles with sin. We pray pray for that transforming grace in the broken relationships that we have in this life, be they with spouses or children or friends or extended family. We pray, Lord, for that grace which alone can heal and mend what is broken. Father, we pray also that you would grant to us hearts that would never harden their hearts to this word of grace, that would accept and embrace it in repentance and faith. For we know, O oh Lord, that your justice is severe towards those who reject your word. Father, we thank you for your mercy toward us that although we in our flesh, if left to ourselves, would only reject your word, we know that if left to ourselves, we would only ridicule your prophet. You have taken upon yourself the curse of the covenant as Jesus Christ died on the cross to make atonement for all our sins. And so, Father, we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.